You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. This is episode 36. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host, Josh Humphrey, and today is going to be another episode of FUD Busting with just me. Sorry if you were hoping for another guest, um, but yeah, it's just going to be me again today, and we're doing FUD Busting. I was going to just pick one of the topics off of the FUD dice, because that meant I could make it easy on myself and pick one that I felt like I was really confident in explaining. But I figured instead I should just take this as an opportunity to force myself to learn better, learn more, learn better. Got me some good learning. And anyway, so um, so I actually just actually rolled the FUD dice and it landed on small blocks. So this one is actually fairly easy, and the basics are that um, small blocks keep Bitcoin decentralized, and big blocks lead to centralization. And we can see that, you know, we're a year and a half out after the Bcash hard fork, and we can tell that it didn't work out for them after all. For Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening. Okay, okay, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is that simple in, in some ways, but um, uh, let's take a little deeper look here. Um, you know, before we discuss the actual size of the block limit and, and where that's at, let's consider why we have any limit at all. There, there was no block size limit in the original code that was released by Satoshi. He added the code in uh, July of 2010, and then that um, that was that was included in the September commit to be activated at a specific block. And um, you know, interestingly, he did not advertise this. He, there, there's hardly any explanation. Actually, there's no explanation given. There's no comment given. If you look at the version history, there is, um, let's see, what does it say? So the only comment on the commit log for, for that commit is... Disable minimize to tray on Linux because it has too many problems, including a CPU peg bug. So, um, you know, he knew full well that he was putting this in there. So it kind of begs the question, why did he not tell people about this? Um, you know, according to people who were around at the time, he did not post much to IRC. He did not often, did not often give uh, reasons for why he did, did the things he did or put the code he put in um, proactively. He, now, he, he sometimes defended or, or explained it later, but um, he didn't necessarily explain it on the, on the front side. So um, he puts this code in in July. 
the the new version goes out in uh like early to mid September of 2010 for to to get activated later at that specific block and it's re- <laughs> it's really funny by the uh let's see what was it like October 3rd Jeff Garzik already is trying to push out a patch to raise the block size limit so um it's not funny I'm sure it wasn't funny then I mean it, it wouldn't have any reason to be funny but we can see that you know, he's been trying to raise the block size limit since, you know, essentially two weeks after the block size limit went into place. So um, you can read through the forum posts, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin talk forums, um, and there's some back and forth. But, you know, uh, when he's trying, when, when Garzik is trying to raise the block size limit immediately after it's posted, um, Satoshi kind of brushes it off like uh, we're nowhere near hitting that block size limit now and um you know even if we ever get to that point it's it's more or less a trivial thing to to change it at that point and so you know i could see where a big blocker might might look at that and try and hang on to that quotation and say you know see satoshi thought oh it's no big deal we'll just change the block size limit whenever we want but um you know, Satoshi was not all-knowing. Um, as much as I like to speculate that maybe he was a time traveler, I, I don't. I don't truly believe that because, you know, he did not predict um, ASICs or mining pools, or um, you know, he, he also left at the end of 2010. So. Uh, if he'd wanted to, he could have stayed around. If he had wanted to come back and intervene, he could have, but he didn't. So, you know, at this point, Satoshi is no longer part of the project from as far as we know. Um, also, he was not Jesus. You know, he's human and flawed like everybody else. So it's possible that he overlooked things or made mistakes just like everybody else does. And we're not obligated or compelled to keep everything he wanted even if he was still around i mean i'm grateful for him uh and for what he gifted to us but you know this uh appeal to authority which is inconsistent usually um uh, it just it rubs me the wrong way okay so let's back up though why did he put the block limit in at all you know and not tell anyone about it uh, I think from from reading through the forum posts and reading some additional commentary by Thamos, who uh, was a prominent member of Bitcoin talk forums and the R Bitcoin subreddit, um, you can kind of gather that uh, this was mostly an attempt to uh, to avoid DOS denial of service attacks. So remember that this is this is happening in 2010, and uh, at this time, most people are still mining on single GPUs. They're not mining in pools. They're not mining with ASICs. Um, I'm not even sure. I don't even think they were mining with GPUs at the time. They're still on on CPUs. So um, imagine that, and also the blocks weren't weren't even full. Nowhere close to it at this time. 
and they did not expect to run up to that limit for a while. And I even saw some belated entries in some of these forum posts where you go in and, you know, some there's there's like dead space for two years and someone comes back and says, well, it's been two years, still not seeing all that impending, you know, doomsday traffic that everyone was predicting. Now, we do know that um, later the traffic did come and there was congestion on the network and we had to have increasing fees and all that stuff, but at the time it, it still wasn't there. So um, let's imagine a scenario where there had been no block size limit put into place. So let's imagine a scenario where you are one of the first people to start mining with very expensive GPUs or FPGAs. So now you and anyone else with similar grade hardware are mining and you have a very significant advantage over other people on the network. You can just keep making these gigantic um, blocks that have no limit and you are able to not only build these giant blocks, but outpace other lesser hardware nodes on the network um, to the point that essentially they're dropping off the network because they're not able to keep pace with these giant incoming blocks that you are creating. And as more of the no those nodes drop off, you control essentially a greater percentage of the hashing power, greater percentage of the network. And now you have this opportunity to um, to double spend or to censor other nodes and transactions, etc. And and then you know the next um, time the hash rate adjusts, now it's going to have a disproportionate jump. Uh, I, I say disproportionate, I mean in percentage of other nodes on the network because uh, you you have this advantage, and now it pushes it up, which makes it harder for the lower nodes to keep pace as well. And so this only kind of consolidates power with the um, the fastest mining hardware. And this does happen. Um, I'm not going to pretend that, that to some extent the, the um, difficulty adjustment doesn't behave that way. Um, we see that happen when when there is a jump in mining technology and, and technique, you know, pools, GPUs, FPGAs, ASICs. When you move into those things, and even with the ASICs, um, you know, when Bitmain was rolling out their next gen every six months, there there was a huge jump in, I say huge, there was a jump in their hashing ability of that next series of miners. And if you didn't update, you couldn't keep pace. And so your your mining equipment was essentially obsolete very quickly. Um, you know, but we, we saw a separation of miners from non-mining nodes, and we also got the block size limit, um, which was at the time set at a level which lesser hardware could reasonably achieve in the approximately 10 minute time frame. So we didn't have that issue where you have these, these um, runaway miners with these 64 megabyte block size or, or whatever, just controlling the network. You, you do have, you did have a centralization to some extent of mining. Um, and we'll probably cover that in a future FUD busting episode. But I think we can see as, um, you know, here in the last year as ASIC manufacturing has, um, 
you know, been commoditized and you have more companies manufacturing them and we are more or less seeing the fall of Bitmain, even if it doesn't totally collapse, um, it, it is not the, you know, the boogeyman that we, that people accused it of being, you know, a year ago. It, it, it does not have the same kind of control over mining that it, it once enjoyed um, be, because they have hit the um, kind of the, the cutting edge of technology and ASIC ability in general um, specific to the SHA-256 algorithm. And so, um, you know, you are now seeing the, you know, I think that was kind of peak centralization um, for mining, and I think you're you're seeing it now get more and more dispersed, and um, you know it'd be interesting to see if Matt Carollo's better hash catches on, um, what that could do also for decentralization. Anyway, um, you know I think with UASF and the Node2x campaigns. You know, I think we have proven the importance of running a fully validating node and a non-mining node and and that um, maintaining that decentralized nature uh, for validation and verification is both important as well as totally possible. Um, you know, nobody's mining on CPUs or GPUs anymore. Mining is all done by pools of ASICs um, unless someone's just trying to heat their house for no reason and have a giant loud turbine in their house. It is interesting to note that, you know, Satoshi's last post, aside from popping up again in 2014 to say that he was not Dorian Nakamoto, uh, it pointed out that he still believed there was a lot of work to be done to protect from various denial-of-service attacks. And, um, I, you know, I'm not saying that we've worded all of them uh, because I don't know what all he was thinking of but I think that um, you know the dispersion the geographical dispersion and number of fully validating nodes on the network and the dispersion of various mining pools um, you know because you have a number of mining pools and even those mining pools in general um, you know the, the, the central hub of that pool may be operated in one country or another, but there's people from all over the world that may be participating in that pool. Um, you know, the, the nature of, the, the decentralized nature of all of that makes um, most kinds of attacks on Bitcoin uh, very expensive and physically difficult at this point. Not saying it's impossible, but it is is definitely difficult. We'll be back with more Bottom Shelf Bitcoin in a minute. But first, let me tell you about the sponsors of this show. If you've been listening to the show, you know I've recently launched Bitcoin Merit Badge, my online shop that sells Velcro-backed merit badges and morale patches about Bitcoin. These are a great way to show off your skills or just have a laugh about Bitcoin. What you might not know is that these patches are manufactured by our friends at Patchion. If you're looking for a custom embroidered patch, Patchion is your answer. They work with you to turn your image into a high-quality patch with several options for backing, including adhesive, Velcro, plastic-backed, and more. 
So if you're looking for a patch for your motorcycle group or special event like conferences or just something fun for yourself, check out patchyon.uk. Okay, so, you know, at this point, we've talked about how um, mining has changed. It has more or less been separated out from validating nodes. It is done by ASICs and pools. And so, um, and with the decentralized nature, we don't, we don't really worry about the denial of service attacks on, on Bitcoin. Um, so then, do we need to keep the block size limit? Do we need to keep blocks small? Um, and if so, why? And so I would say one thing that, that, um, you know, we have the familiar large block versus small block debates that went on, um, you know, for a couple of years and we've kind of settled those now with the aftermath of the Bcash hard fork. But I think one thing that does not get talked about enough is that, you know, even ever since the white paper going back that far, we, we've known that at some point, um, the mining has to transition to fees only when the Coinbase reward eventually goes to zero. And uh, while Satoshi never explicitly said it, you know, it makes sense that forcing the market to begin early, um, forcing users to think in terms of a fee market earlier makes, um, you know, kind of cements that in the way that people think about Bitcoin. And it makes it easier to to do that and make that transition and kind of force that transition. I don't know if that's um, what he was thinking, if that was his goal in putting it in there and setting it where he did and leaving it in there. But I think that it makes sense to leave it in there in that sense because it forces people to get in their mind that there's going to be a fee market. And um, it, it's easier to to have that mindset this far out rather than trying to transition when, hey, the Coinbase reward has gone to zero. And actually, it, it would have to be dealt with before that because, you know, um, the, the Coinbase reward is going to get low enough before it gets to actually zero that if there is not a sufficient fee market, there is concern that the um, there will not be enough hash rate to secure the network. And I think I think this is another side of the dice, so we'll we'll probably deal with this more later. But um, you know this this mining death spiral, you know the the hashing difficulty dropping and enough hash power dropping off the network to make the network not secure and this quote-unquote mining death spiral um, is, is not really a valid concern. All you would do is then wait for more confirmations. Um, you know, we would all just have to adjust to waiting for more than six confirmations if we needed to. It, I just, you know, it's more time, it's less convenient, but... I don't. I don't think it's like a a Bitcoin killer scenario. It just that doesn't fly with me. Um, but anyway, yeah. The the 
block size limit creating a fee market early helps make that mental transition for people and prepare them far enough out that you know when we go to totally fee market it just it's not a surprise it's not a sudden or recent thing at that point it's been going on for a while um, beyond that we get um, kind of the standard big block versus small block arguments that we've hashed a million times you know in many ways it just it comes down to a difference in trade-off preferences some people um, prioritize throughput and you know they are willing to sacrifice decentralization and sacrifice the the little guy with the not fast internet connection being able to fully validate his own transactions on his own full node and they're willing to trade that which is the path towards centralization and they're willing to trade that off for a temporary increase in throughput and i say temporary not because it's like oh we've doubled the the throughput transactions per second and then it drops back but more like um, a temporary satisfaction with the level of throughput because and 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 I knew that would happen and um, I, I think many people called that 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 this was the it's not that raising it to two is itself the problem but it's the precedent you're setting and you're saying that it's okay to change it and so what stops you from changing it again and we've seen that that's already happened several times um, you know, you can look at the hard fork fractals spiraling out into absurdity over in Bcash land. And so, yeah, I mean, a bunch of people called this. All right, yeah, you want two megablocks, but next week you're going to need four and eight and 16, and when does it stop? And, um, yeah, that's that's exactly what they've done. And they have they have chosen transactions per second over network security and they are you know killing each other over there in abc versus sv land now in contrast small blockers say that yes we are willing to sacrifice network throughput and transaction per seconds to um you know maintain the ability to to run a full node by as many people out there as possible it still does not take very much um it does not take a very fancy computer to run your own bitcoin full node and you know i talked about this with clark moody the first time he was on the show and then again to some extent with stop and decrypt when he was on talking about ethereum centralization issues and um you know, for non-mining nodes, which are validating the transaction and keeping the network honest, the problem is not about the actual disk usage space, um, but it's more about bandwidth and processing power. You know, um, I think it's Moore's Law that suggests that um, the storage space will continue to get cheaper. Um, you know, we can see that go back five, ten years and look at how much it costs for a 500 gig hard drive and now you can get two and four terabyte hard drives and it's really not that expensive as well as solid state drives, right? They're just screaming fast. Um, 
but it's um you know the the bigger issue is not the storage space itself for the size of the blockchain but it is it is bandwidth and it is processing power um and, and bandwidth and processing power have just not kept up the same kind of pace with um increasing the um the amount of storage space you can get at a price point so you can you can run bitcoin on a raspberry pi but um you will not likely be able to um catch up if you're doing your initial sync from that raspi um just because the processing power and the amount of input output per second is restricted compared to a regular processor and a regular computer um but you, you don't have to have a fancy you know obviously like a raspberry pi is a, is a small computer it's 35 dollars right it's it's a small computer um that's not what it was designed for but um you can take a fairly old i3 processor and still run bitcoin core on it and sync and it may take you a little longer it may be a little slower but you'll get there and that's still validating every transaction um the other thing besides processing power is um is bandwidth, right? So I don't know what kind of internet speed you get. Um, I had, I believe I was at a like a, a 50 megs down, uh, which I considered decent. I mean, it was sufficient for what I needed. Um, and then I started running my own node and I was bumping up, not not necessarily on the, the download speed, but the I was hitting the um, data cap limits for my provider very quickly. And I realized that that is my provider specifically, but um, there are definitely places with worse internet in terms of data caps and speed and other things like that. So uh, by allowing, but by being conservative and keeping the blocks small, that means we are limiting the necessary bandwidth and processing power, which maximizes the number of people and the amount of hardware that this program can run on and by maximizing the number of people that can run nodes we you know we keep the ability for as many people as possible to verify and validate the network and keep everything honest if instead we go down the other path in the other direction where we are valuing throughput and transaction speed over the ability for everyone to check their own nodes then we are becoming paypal or visa and um and by that i mean we are becoming we it's it's going to become a network where um the network is essentially large companies with server farms and they will censor people as we have recently seen with paypal and visa and patreon and these big payment processor company censoring people so that's the opposite of the point of bitcoin anyway um i think we're kind of getting redundant here at this point and and these arguments have all been played out over years so you know i've said it before and i will say it again i'm glad that we went through the hard forks and uh, last year um it gave an outlet for 
the big blockers and the hard forkers to go off. You know, it's a it was a, a pressure relief valve. Pressure relief is it relief or release valve? I think they're both technically accurate. I just don't know what the whatever. Anyway, um, it was an opportunity for for those people to go off on their own way and quit um, influencing and holding Bitcoin back in that sense. Uh, It also forced a lot of people, myself included, to learn how to secure their coins and run their own nodes. And so I I think overall it was good for the system. It was a test of could we go through a tough time without Satoshi? And the answer was yes. Um, You know, I I think I said this earlier, but, um, you you know, one of my predictions that has come true of the big blockers is that they would continue to hard fork and they and you know we talked about that earlier that they would continue to increase the block size limit and that um they would splinter off and continue splintering off into irrelevance and and we've seen that um you know the one thing that we didn't see or I say the one thing the one of the things that I was hoping that we would be able to look at and see and and say, see, we told you so, was the um the big centralization and um I think there has been definitely been centralization um in Bcash land, but um you know we didn't see we don't see the same level of centralization playing out because there's just not enough use of Craig coin or Jihan coin to matter. They just they hit irrelevance faster than they hit centralization. Uh, I do think that we are seeing and will continue to see the centralization narrative play out with Ethereum. Um, they are already very beholden to Infura, which is one, a subsidiary of the consensus company, which is, you know, developing all these things. And then two, um, Infura, which runs. And two, Infura, which is a company, you know, like we said, it's a sub- So Ethereum is already, the, as a network, is already very beholden to Infura, which is a subsidiary of the consensus company. They are the biggest host of full archival nodes which are hosting nearly all the Ethereum quote-unquote dApps, which if they're all running primarily on one set of servers, I don't think you, I think you have to drop the D. To me, they're just apps. They're not decentralized. But on top of that, Infura is running them all on AWS. Like, they're not even running the nodes themselves. They're running them on Amazon Web Services. So, it's just so not decentralized. Um, if you have not been paying attention to this recent thing, they um, they they whiplashed their community by um, begging them to upgrade their nodes for this uh, Constantinople hard fork, and then they turned around and like a day later are urgently warning them to downgrade their nodes or or uh, upgrade to a new hot fix that they pushed out 
um, because they found that the Constantinople upgrade hard fork had a security bug in the code. What a surprise. We've totally never seen that happen with Ethereum stuff before. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, continue to watch the space. If you, um, if you are interested in seeing what the roadmap is for Ethereum development because they're working on shifting over to Ethereum 2.0. Um, James Prestwich had a, a, a great post that came out uh, today that's called What to Expect When ETH is Expecting and uh, where he goes through and tries to explain. I mean, he does explain. Um, it's just very confusing to me anyways, what's going to happen and what the plan is, the loose plan is for these various phases of development and changing over from Ethereum to Ethereum 2.0. And essentially they're replacing everything uh, eventually. So it's just, it's crazy. Go check out his article on it. So that is essentially um, why we have small blocks why they're good, why we're keeping them. Um, I'm not saying we'll never uh, increase the block size limit, but uh, but but all of it makes sense um, economically and with the mining incentives and various things. It, it's it's okay and it's not bad. And um, and you know the other thing that I didn't mention that basically negates all of the problems with. Um, you know, that, that people, all this FUD that people put up against small blocks is that we, we have the Lightning Network now, right? Like, we got SegWit, we got Lightning activated, and so we're seeing the explosive growth of the Lightning Network and all these use cases come up with Lightning that essentially makes every altcoin irrelevant, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, here's what I'm hoping and I don't know how much this has been talked about or not, but, you know, Consensus, the company, recently laid off a bunch of people, and, and that sucks, you know, when you lose your job. So uh, I'm, I'm not gloating over that. Um, but what what my hope is is that these guys and girls who were developing on Ethereum, and especially as this narrative becomes more obvious of how centralized Ethereum is, that um, people who were developing on Ethereum will move over and develop apps and things and services for Lightning. Um, you know, I think people who have really good UX experience have, have an incredible opportunity and um, to, to develop some things that, that really have a real use case now that we have these abilities with Lightning on Bitcoin. So if you were an Ethereum developer, come over and work on Lightning. It's great. It actually works. All right, guys, uh, if you have more comments on that, if you have better explanations or better links to certain things regarding small blocks, um, let me know in, uh, in in the comments to the tweet when I post this uh, or hit me up on Twitter. Uh, you guys know the drill. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode and then turn around and share it with your friends and your enemies. Uh, if you do want to contribute directly, you can go to bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash donate and see the various ways there, including TallyCoin, that you can contribute financially to my cause here. Um, you can also go to bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash kidsbook and get yourself one or all of the Tuttle Twins books. Those are a great way to teach your kids about 
free market economics and liberty and all these ideas. Um, there is one called the Tuttle Twins and the Creature from Jekyll Island that is a great explanation of uh, the problems with our current fiat system and why we need Bitcoin. And then I just got the newest one, Tuttle Twins and the Fate of the Future, which is an adaptation of Murray Rothbard's Anatomy of the State. So I'm really excited to read that one. So if you follow that link, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash kidsbook, you can um, support the show. It doesn't it doesn't cost you anything extra, you know, um, but while you're buying something that is great and going to benefit you and or your family, um, the show gets a little kickback, so you're helping us out. Um, I've had several people use that referral link lately, so if you were one of those people, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at BottomShelfBTC. My DMs are actually open now, even though I've been saying for like a year that they were open. Apparently that wasn't true. So if you tried to DM me previously, very sorry. I thought they were open. They were not. They are now. If you have questions or ideas about the show or just comment, um, yeah, hit me up there. I am excited. I've got some interviews coming up with uh, Justin Moon and Alex Hardy as well. So stay tuned. And in the next couple episodes, we will be getting back into that interview conversation format. So um, come back for those. For Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening.